0: Welcome to episode 495. I am currently still on vacation. This is a uh, rerun of uh, one of my favorite episodes from the first year of the podcast. This is part two, part one was uh, last week. This is part two of my interview with uh, Greg Cheever. And our sponsor for today, as always, is uh, the online therapy provider, betterhelp.com. If you've never tried online therapy, Uh, I highly highly recommend it. I've been doing it for a couple of years and it has helped me tremendously. Um, You don't have to leave your home. There's something really nice about that and they have tons of great qualified therapists so if you are interested go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast and then just fill out a questionnaire and if they feel like they have a good counselor match for you, they will match you up with one and then you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you and you need to be over 18. Uh, actually, you don't need to be over 18. to Well, to do better help, you need to be over 18 but if you're between 13 and 17, they will direct you to teencounseling.com and, uh, Uh, They will take care of all of the stuff there, contacting the parent to get approval, and then once that's done, uh, it's a private, uh, everything is private between the counselor and and the teen, and it meets all the legal requirements in all 50 states. All right, without further ado, this is part two with Greg Cheever. Welcome to episode 25 with my guest, Greg Cheever. Uh, this is part two of a two part interview with him. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the mental illness happy hour, an hour of honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions to everyday compulsive negative thinking, feelings of dissatisfaction, disconnection, inadequacy, and yes, that vague sinking feeling that the world is passing us by. You give us an hour, we'll give you a hot ladle of awkward and icky. But first, a few notes. The website for this podcast is mentalpod.com. That's also the Twitter name you can follow me at. If you'd like to support the show, um, um, you can also take a survey uh, there. That uh, that helps me get to know who you are. Um, and if you want to support the show non-financially, please go to iTunes and give us a good rating. That uh, boosts our ranking, and that helps get more people to the show, which uh, which, of course, we love. Uh, some people I want to thank that help put this show together. Um, I want to thank uh, my wife, who uh, Carla, who always gives me such great feedback. Uh, those of you uh, who listen that that give me feedback, I want to thank you, uh, Steve Grieve, who does the uh, the website. You can visit Steve's uh, website. It's chromadial.com. He's a web designer. And does quite a tremendous job. And uh, I want to thank Martin Willis for uh, helping me uh, put some of the guest blogs together. We're uh, we're in the process of uh, doing that right now. Oh, I also want to uh, mention that uh, I'm going to be performing uh, my uh, satirical character, uh, Republican Representative Richard Martin, at Zoe's in Ventura. Uh, Monday, September 12th. I think the show's probably around 8 or so. And uh, a bunch of great people on the bill with me. Gray DeLisle, Janet Varney, uh, Jimmy Dore, and uh, Eddie Pepitone, and a couple other comedians. I'd like to read a, a letter I got from uh, a guy named Eli. And... Uh, He writes, Hi, big fan of the show, just recently started listening and I'm really enjoying it. I think it probably helps a lot of people get through some tough issues and is a great public service. However, I have one bone to pick. It seems like in every interview, you eventually get around to saying how the problems that anyone faces in life had to be that way to arrive at where you are now, or that the universe has a plan that includes meaningful hardship and that it all works out in the end with the person concerned being a better human being, etc. Now I understand from a personal subjective point of view that this kind of new age reasoning can be comforting uh, and can help individuals with personal problems but in a larger way it is intellectually shallow and even offensive. Um, And and then he lists a bunch bunch of examples of horrible events from, from Uh, history. Um, I don't know why kids get cancer. I don't know why there are Hitlers and why there's other kinds of shit that happens. What I do know is that there's an energy in the universe that brings me comfort when I go through painful things. And sometimes I think the universe feeds us and sometimes I think the universe needs us to feed it and make sacrifices. And that's kind of the model that I have in my head that helps me. I I have no idea if I'm anywhere near the mark. What I do know is it helps me get out of bed, it helps me smile more, and it helps me be of more service to my fellow man and my immediate family. So I keep doing that. Uh, I respect the fact that you disagree with that. And... uh, I would just ask you to extend the same respect to me and uh uh I'm not a big fan of organized religion. Uh, I've probably in fact I know I've put it down before on this on this show, and uh I apologize to anybody that I've offended for for doing that. Um I'm a fan of spirituality, I'm not a fan of organized religion, but I don't I don't begrudge anybody that that uses organized religion and who finds comfort from it. Um you know, And some of you may be saying, what is the difference between organized religion and spirituality? Aren't they one and the same thing? And I heard somebody say one time that uh, organized religion is for people who are afraid of going to hell, and spirituality is for people who have been there. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. I couldn't stand you in the audition. I couldn't stand you. Yes, awful. I was drunk. And I learned that I could solve my problems. And said. Through violence, since I couldn't communicate. Lonely? Yes. I'm afraid that my genitalia is ugly. That's hurtful. And what was your role in the robbery? I mean, you never knew what you were going home to. I had a jar that had teeth in it. I was a wreck. Other people's teeth? Yeah. So uh, just to quickly recap part one with Greg, uh, he was a uh, heroin addict who got caught uh, trying to sell heroin, um, went on the lam as uh, he didn't show up for his court appearance, uh, went on the lam as uh, under the name Harry Bring for a while, uh, was eventually caught, uh, thrown in jail, did his time came out still with a mean heroin habit, managed to get rehired by Fox Studios as a projectionist, and uh, was on his third marriage,
1: right? Yes, I was on my third wife. Uh, Wife number two uh, went off into oblivion to, unfortunately, later die of this disease in the streets. And wife three was um, a fabulous lady, the best of my four marriages as far as Coming close to real love. She was a great lady. We really loved each other. We had a great passion for each other. But we were both addicts. And uh, she was right alongside me. Uh, And her father was the head DA of NIs.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Boy, you really can pick them. You really can pick (laughs) them.
1: So, uh, and her mom was a famous court stenographer for big cases like Manson's. Oh, really? And, uh, yeah, she did all the big cases, you know. Um, so anyways, um, I'm also now getting used to being with a parole officer and, uh, like and I like to she's I, female, she's female. I draw this lady parole officer and I start to work at the studios and I, I'm thinking in the back of my head cause I'm not asking too many uh, questions or tr- trying to raise any feathers because I'm trying to think of how. I can use until I get used to this parole thing. I mm-hmm. I'm going crazy. Right. right. So in the meantime, and I use him, dr- in particular <clears throat> heroin, cause that's your drug A- absolute- choice. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so, uh, I'm starting to drink for the first time. Right. I started with, uh, Tanqueray and, uh, sweps and limes. And I remember started drinking. Let's see. I was barely 30 then. And, uh, I really hadn't drank before that. I was a pure drug addict, right? So I started drinking these gin and tonics, and I thought, well, wow, that's, that's pretty good. Right? <laughs> uh, okay, I kind of like that, right? Uh, not my choice, but it was working. It'll do in a pinch. It was working, yeah. and I started noticing that, that I was having to buy like a bo- uh, quart like every other night, right? And I just started, right? <laughs> uh, very monster tolerance, very high tolerance. To everything. Uh anyway, so that gets to be a regular thing until I feel like this parole thing, and then I get a call one day I'm working at the studio. Oh, well, you gotta come in. And I say, uh I say to my my uh my parole lady, uh, I, I can't I can't just leave this this is my job here. i would lose my job. I uh, she says, What where, what do you do? What do you what are you doing again? I said, I'm a projectionist in the studio and I happened at the time, really, to be working on Rocky, right? was uh-huh. on Rocky, right? And uh, and I said, I'm working on this film. I I can't leave. There's, it's, uh, you know, unless you're going to send me back to jail, that's the only way I'm going to leave. Right. Right. <clears throat> and she said, Oh, really? I said, but I can get you a pass to come to the studio and come and get on the stage and and I'll do my urine test for you here she goes you can and as i as i found out she was mm-hmm. complete movie junkie right, right? There, there's another guy shot right Right. because i I'm, you're talking about a 7 year testing parole unless you do 2 years completely clean every time
0: mm-hmm.
1: and i th- i think she told me she'd never ever had anybody do it and when when i did it on Everybody else's pee but mine, because she would come to the, into the projection booth, into the studio, and I'd take her down on the mixing stage and whatever, right, and say, you can sit back here and listen to and watch them mix. It's, it's a mix. That's the director, mm-hmm. you know, and there's the composer over there, and these are the, these are the uh, sound mixers, you know. And, mm-hmm. Oh, my God, right. She'd sit in the back, and, you know, and um, she'd give me the bottle, and mm-hmm. I'd run upstairs and get some clean pee. Right. She so, wasn't supposed
0: so, to watch you pee? I,
1: I have no idea. Yeah. But, but whatever. Yeah. You know, um, all I know is I did that for two years, and and she was, like, so proud of me. And I was goud the whole time. Wow.
0: Right. Goud meaning high on heroin? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: I was pretty, I was, and both of us, both me and, and Georgia, my uh, uh, wife, number three, yes, she was... Um, she was right there and there with me, so I'm working at Warner Hollywoods, and I start to uh There's this famous mixer in Hollywood is on this stage with me he everybody wants to bring his big films to him. He's booked for two years solid Wow uh all the big films came to this guy and uh and he loved me, and he was a normal guy married into this you know suburban f- family. But brilliant, a brilliant, brilliant man, brilliant historian, brilliant, un, unbelievable mind. Um, and he starts kind of getting interested in. And, and what was it? What was the guy's name? Uh, Richard Portman. Mm-hmm. He won the Oscar for The Deer Hunter. So, anyways, he 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 uh, starts kind of interested in my life and what's going on. And I had this big, sp- spacious booth that was like its own little, about the size of this room or in here. It was fabulous. With a big bay window and ice box, and climbers in it. And this was I, his office or yours? This was my booth, the yeah, room I actually the worked in booth, every day. Right. Yeah. And it was the most technical and advanced stage in Hollywood. It was the first high-speed stage uh, anywhere in the business, actually. It was like a prototype stage. And um,
0: Your job basically was to get the... Uh, the the film that had been rough edited from the editors or the director and put it up so the studio and the director could sit in the same room and look at a rough cut. Correct. Well, there's
1: there's many different uh, jobs of a projectionist because there's many different ways the films and its application are used until it's put into a composite form. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're doing like a like a scoring session back then. Because the movie doesn't have mu- music going all the way through it, right. they cut out what's called big loops, and you put certain loops up. It'd be uh, be like CM twelve, which would be cue music twelve, right? And that's what's down the sheets down there, and you put it in a hot hole, and you'd run this big loop over and over and over through the thirty five millimeter loops of the projector.
0: And they do now, pass after pass after pass of the music until they yeah, get and it there'd be right.
1: streamers that go across the street, and that's when the downbeat's supposed to stop. Right. Start. Right. And These are all prepared by an editor, and they're handed to you, and then they tell you over the mic, you know, Q thirteen, Q fourteen, whatever, and, or M one two, or whatever. So, and you just put the right stuff up, and whatever. Now, dubbing, it's they they do a reel at a time, so the, and they put them on high speed projectors, and that's interlocked and sunk to the soundtracks that they're mixing to, mm-hmm. and then the sound recorders are mixed to that. <clears throat> Are locked to that, and it's all, it's all interlocked right to the perf, right? And the perf uh, is the holes in, the, in yeah, the film itself. Yeah, there's four perf per frame. So um, actually, there's eight perf per frame. Really, it's a trick, trick question on the projectionist.
0: Four on each side.
1: Thing. Yeah. Um, so, and then there's there's tons of there's picture and track, like you were talking about when they come in from dailies. The track is separate from the dailies. Um, and then there's composite, then there's 70 millimeter. there's 35mm, there's Kenetons, there's uh, uh, probably 14 or 15 different types of applications and different types of projectors. And that, as a projection, is in a major lot, depending on where the film is in its post-production journey. Mm-hmm. So, uh, And I was good. I was really good at it. Uh, I have a very mechanical mind. Like I said, I used to race and build cars. It just came to me really easy really fast and it was once you got it down i could do it really loaded yeah. completely out, <laughs> out of it completely you know i think i saw your movie cheever fully loaded <laughs> <laughs> so uh anyway so i'm working with this guy who's he had he had had this plan that he'd been working in on the side that nobody knew about that robert outwin was going to build him his own stage in his own facility in uh off bundy in West Hollywood, it was that was about ready to come into fruition. So he does, he leaves, and I continue on. Another mixer comes in, does his job, and I'm. I get a call about two weeks later, and he says, "Hey, you want to come to work for me?" So what? I said, like that. So that's when I, I went over, and then he says, "Look, I don't know if I can pay you what you're making now." He said, "All I can pay you uh, is like six fifty a week." Right, which was a lot of money back then, right? You're talking um thirty five years ago, right,
0: which would be what seventy six something like that,
1: yeah, okay, huh and so um anyways, what happens is uh we go to Lionsgate and it, it's Robert Altman's studio uh it's all financed by Fox, you know creator of Mash. Uh, the movie, mashed the movie, and he sold the rights to the TV thing for ten thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, nobody knows that. But his son worked there. And anyways, Lionsgate became this incredible, unbelievable, you know, private, unionized studio. And and Dick brought all of his big clients with him. Made it at the time as high tech as it could be. Robert Altman was a big, you know, he used to send his weed down for me to roll every day. Right. <laughs> and he didn't care what you did there as long as you got your work done. Right. Right. And it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was really, really on there. So, so crazy. Um, this guy comes to me and says, my, my cousin, uh, works at, uh, at, at Pfizer. Right. Uh, he said, well, like one of the top chemists over at this, Pfizer or whatever, and uh, I think I'd get a bunch of drugs from him. What kind would you like? I said, oh, yeah, sure. I was like, kind of blew him off, and he came back and says, really, do you want anything? So Just give me a list, and I'll see if I can. So I gave him a list of, you know, Dilata's, uh, two-and-alls, on and on and on, some of the strongest narcotics ever. And he comes in with bottles of uh, 200 and 500, of these things, one day, right? He says he wants a thousand dollars for this. It was, it was a, <laughs>
0: it was about fifteen thousand. It's a drug addict Christmas. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you are not going to see that uh, airing on WGN, but that is a drug addict <laughs> yeah. Christmas.
1: And the, proceeded to get the whole place strung out. Everybody was just like, everybody was doing hard narcotics. Everybody was just, it was, and and so now I am married to Georgia number three, mm. and she's pregnant. Um, I'm, <clears throat> I'm now living in Venice. Um, things are really out of control. I'm really, really getting hooked on booze and, and heroin, mm-hmm. but the booze is really killing me really because, uh, for me, uh, the alcohol was harder than any, any narcotic and I crossed a lot more moral boundaries on alcohol. Mm-hmm. You know, because uh, it physically tears you up so much, and I never went into blackouts on narcotics, and I was starting to do that uh, on booze. And
0: alcohol gives you an aggressive edge that that narcotics, I, I think, probably don't. Yeah, I was a, I was a. Uh, you don't see many heroin addicts getting in fist fights, do you?
1: No, no, you don't. Uh, no, it's a very passive drug, very yeah. laid back, and whatever. And and but alcohol never did that to me either. Uh, you know, some people, a lot of people, can't do that too. I have been really crazy on it and whatever, and now my wife has had our first child, uh, and we're living in Venice. I'm really, I'm really in bad shape, really, really bad. And but I'm, I managed to get enough narcotics in me to keep me standing, standing up, you know, because I was. I was really getting towards the bottom and she was really getting worried. And I just remember, um, Georgia, you know, starting to completely disconnect from me because when she had that baby, that's when she had her spiritual experience, you might say, because she was just as hooked as me and she disconnected completely from that. She had decided that, um,
0: she needed to get her priorities in in shape.
1: I'd never seen anything like it to this day, and um, she got to a point with me to where we finally lost the house in Venice. Uh, we ended up in Silver Lake, uh, living in a kind of a back bedroom of her of her uh, her grandparents, and she put me in the car one day and drove me down in the middle of Hollywood. And said, "I can't, I can't watch you kill yourself anymore." You know, gave me this key, standing on the street, off of Gower, and uh, said, down that driveway there. There's a little, there's a room in there. Uh, I love you dearly, and I can't, I just can't watch you kill yourself anymore. And it was one of those snapshot memories up here because when I would stand in that street, that car pulled away, and my daughter in the back seat. Oh. With her eyes kind of looking at me as she rolled away, and uh, I was, I was really, really bad, really bad.
0: We are sponsored today by the mobile puzzle game Best Fiends. I'm a big fan of it. If you have never tried Best Fiends, uh, it's it, it works areas of your brain that are very satisfying to to work out. Um, it's it's you. You solve a puzzle, but it's also the puzzles are, um, there's a spatial kind of puzzle solving to it too. There's a strategy to it and the way that they design it is it gets increasingly difficult so it always stays challenging and then they're always coming up with new kinds of stuff so if you're looking for a fun way to pass the time and engage your brain and enjoy breathtaking visuals in a gripping story, your answer is Best Fiends. Best Fiends is a casual game anyone can play. I am currently at level, I think, 153, and uh, I'm having a little trouble getting through this one, but it makes it more satisfying when you do get, get through a level. It does not require uh, internet to play, so you don't need to worry about Wi-Fi access or using cell data. Uh, they update the game monthly, and uh, check it out. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. With over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without VR. Best Fiends.
1: And so I went and proceeded to try and just basically drink myself to death in this place and ended up losing that place, ended up out on the streets, and then a high school friend of mine...
0: Were you working at this time or no?
1: I was working very little. By this time, um, I had run my gamut through all the studios. Mm -hmm. You know, I I knew enough not to take a call if I couldn't make it to it the next day or whatever. I had no car, I had no nothing. That's why she gave me a place in the middle of Hollywood and uh, I was I was I was alcohol poisoned most of that time but what happened from there was uh, you know very close to where I hit my bottom but uh, I I ended up out on the street from there I didn't know where my daughter or her were and I was in blackouts most of the time and uh, I was still trying to get as much heroin and cocaine or anything else I could in myself but I really didn't have any money and they used to run into the into the markets and fill up the cart. And before they used to put the locks on the big bottles and the mm-hmm. and whatever. I, I'd get to the end of the reel and and, and I'd I'd drink a uh, almost a quart inside the market at, at like three or four in the morning, the all night markets.
0: So you wouldn't have to pay for it. Yeah, and they wouldn't I'd catch you. I just it? act
1: like I was shopping, you know, and yeah. be fill the cart up with all the most expensive stuff. <laughs> Yeah. And then on the on the turn of the end of the aisle leave it. past the mirrors. Yeah. I would just stop there and just down as much as I could.
0: You're not the first person I've heard talk about yeah, that.
1: Yeah. And uh did that for a long time. But anyways, um uh, we had a, we have a
0: mutual friend Tim who uh, uh the what forced him to finally get sober was he was in a Ralph's chugging as much of of a thing of of rotgut vodka as he could while the security guard was chasing him around the store and he had a chicken a uh, roast chicken down his pants and the and this uh mexican guard is chasing him around screaming alcoholico alcoholico <laughs> Yeah and he was living on on a porch swing in Venice and uh, and he called a friend of ours up named Kenny Bob and yep. said and uh was telling him what was going on and uh <laughs> living on the porch swing and Kenny Bob said to him you know if you keep drinking uh you could lose that porch You get what you said yeah yeah it's, it's great yeah so uh, uh okay so that is so cool i've, yeah. I've
1: heard that story and I, yeah. I know who you're talking about and yeah. that is so funny yeah and he's
0: a great guy yeah
1: fabulous guy and uh, turned his life around yeah big time um but i'm you know i, I like i say, i lose that place i end up on the streets but before i got to that point and and before things got so horrible after i left Lionsgate, i went back out on the daily circuit and now i'm very intoxicated in blackouts all the time very uh, passing out and coming to—I'm towards—I'm towards my end. I'm towards mm-hmm. it all crashing, burned down. I'm—I'm I'm thirty-three years old, thirty-three and a half years old. Uh, you know, I had to drink. I had to drink to survive these days. So, and I never knew when a blackout was going to happen. Sometimes it could be just uh, six ounces, or sometimes it it could be sixteen ounces, there, or sometimes it wouldn't happen. And that's what blackouts are for most uh, uh, drunks that are in that spot. So. But I would do these crazy things at blackouts. And, uh, so I'm on a pretty good roll, uh, working at Warner Hollywood. I've been there for about a month and a half. They like me. Uh, I'm doing okay. I'm staying out of everybody's face. I've just got a nice little job working where I can drink and do my deal and go home. And they put me on this night show there running, uh, this movie. A big pre preview deal. Right. And, uh. Uh, they they always were always very trusting of my talent. I was always very good at what I did. And uh, that's one thing I, that I think allowed me to survive so long on the circuit out there is I was very qualified. And uh, uh, so I'm running this back in the day when they had previews at actually studios before they would take them to, you, you know, like the Grumman's or something like mm-hmm. they do now or whatever, they actually had... They'd do their own previews on the lots with the spotlights and they'd call the local press in and they would do their little, uh, you know, they'd do their little audio recordings, much Mm -hmm. like we're doing, you know, Mm -hmm. for the stars and stuff. And they'd have the spotlights going and make a big hoo-ha, the head of the studio would come and the directors, producers, cast and crew, the regular deal. And I can't remember which film it was, uh, but it was was a pretty big film. And I'm running in the main theater at Warner Hollywood. And everything's going along fine. I start, and I get like in the second or third reel. It's a very warm night. There's no air conditioning in the booth. Arc arc lights for the lights for the projectors, which are very hot. And uh, I've got my shirt off. Uh, and I got my vodka bottle on the electrical gutter right next to the projector. It's a nice big cord of uh, probably come shotgun or something. And I'm slugging away at it and whatever, and I'm checking the screen, and I'm making sure everything's going, and I'm changing between the A projector and the B projector, and everything's going fine. And then we get to this scene on the outside, and I, and I look out the port, and I notice this hair up caught in the aperture. hmm In the sky scene, you could really see it really apparent. It was very irritating. You know, moving real quick and wiggling all over the screen. It's covering half the screen, right? Yeah. And um, uh, so we have our ways to get out of there. I, I, I run over the compressed air and shoot it into the aperture. It doesn't move. I flick the aperture with my hand. It doesn't move. I spit on the edge of the film. It doesn't move. Now I've we have another little trick we do where you loosen the back plate of the of the thing and and throw some air in behind there The film goes out of focus just a little bit but mm-hmm. that's the last escape right and then you tighten it back up i could not get that 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 hair off the screen mm-hmm. right that's kind of like the last thing i remember is using every trick i knew in the book to try and do this now the next thing i remember is being woken up by a janitor in a utility closet one building over <laughs> with my wife and my six-month-old uh, daughter in her arms with this uh, janitor standing next to them both looking at me with their jaws dropped and I as I come out of this blackout everything kind of goes back in reverse in my head like a like wine a tape back right like oh my god I knew where I was when I came out of it because I, I used to shoot heroin in that closet, right? Uh-huh. right? And uh, everything went back, and, and as everything went back, I'm rising up uh, off the ground. And as I'm rising up off the ground, I realize I have no clothes on. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right? So everybody, they're both look they don't know what to say, both my wife and the janitor, right? And all I know is that she had my pants in her hand, and I, I threw the pants on because I knew I had to get back to that screening before that reel ran out because usually in a motion picture, there's eight different reels. You guys never see it when you see them. It's not that way anymore, but back then used to be two projectors and you had to make these changeovers between the reels. Mm -hmm. Each one is approximately about 20 minutes. Yeah. Right? And if you aren't there, when that runs out, it goes to white on the screen and no sound. It's just white light going out through the lens. Yeah. And not only will it burn a lens... Pieces, but uh, the take-up reels in the bottom have such torque on them that it'll it'll shred the film. So as I as I'm tearing back uh, to this out to this one building down these stairs, I come out and there are all these people milling around. It was an upstairs theater. They're all kind of milling around the parking lot, and they're all kind of looking up at the projection booth, and they just kind of look aimless right and i come tearing around the corner i come up the stairs i come up and as i'm approaching the stairway to come into the booth i notice little chunks of film flying out (laughs) right and uh and then i i you know as i'm coming out that back door and i see all the people around i know i'm already really something's really drastically long but i'm already in motion i just got to go for it and uh so now, here's here's kind of really the, the cruncher of the whole thing, okay? So I shut the film down. I close everything up. I go home, right? Yeah. Uh, George is like, I don't know what the hell happened back there, but I don't think it was good, Greg, right? <laughs> uh, something's, I, I, and I'm like, ah, whatever, okay, yeah, I know. I, I'm going to get hell for it tomorrow, whatever. So I come in for my call the next day, right? And I'm, it was an 8 o'clock call in the morning on a dub stage. And I'm, I mean, it's the. It's like the second hand hit 8, and the yeah. phone rings, right? And it's the head of the department on there. He goes, God damn it, Cheever. Oh, I wish I could have been there. <laughs> Why wasn't I there? Oh, my God, that's unbelievable. I wish I, that, oh, I am so pissed off I couldn't have been there. Uh, well, of course you're fired. <laughs> but why couldn't have I be there, right? And and I'm going, why? What what are you talking? What what? Uh, you, know, you know, I said, I know, I, I know, I screwed up and whatever like that. And so here's what happened. Somewhere when I blacked out t- trying to get that hair out of the aperture, mm-hmm. and I don't remember the next thing. I next thing I remember is waking up in a utility closet. Right,
0: but the the one thing you had told me when you told me this story before, what, the, to, use the phrase you used to like to do when you'd get loaded with your
1: clothes. Oh, nude up. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that was a natural. Yeah. And and so I I guess this is what happened in the blackout because you're right. Every time I would go home when I was loaded, I would I would just take all my clothes. I've been doing that for years. Yeah. Right. And uh, I still have this naked thing going. Whatever, so you're nude but, up. I nude up. Right. So anyways. So you're in the booth, nude it up. Uh, apparently. Well, no. I, I, yeah. I, well, here I, I had no idea this happened. So I came in that next morning. Right. Right. Uh, When he's making such this statement, like, oh, did I miss? Oh, my God. Right. Right. And he's doing it with enthusiasm, like, Mm -hmm. this has got to be one of the best. This is going to be legendary in the business, (laughs) right? So in my blackout, somewhere in my twisted thinking in that blackout, I figured that that hair was out on the screen. (laughs) And I better take off all my clothes to go see if it is. (laughs) Right? So I take off all my clothes. I walk out of the booth. I walk down the hallway. I walk up to the emergency doors that are right by the screen. They're exit doors, actually, mm-hmm. right?
0: And there are how many people watching this screening? Oh, it's a
1: completely full theater of like two hundred and fifty, maybe three hundred. VIPs? Yes, VIPs. Head of the studio there, right? <laughs> and director the whole. And the you whole, can't
0: remember what movie it
1: was. I know I can't. Yeah, I, everything was so overpowering. Whatever. Yeah. Um, I probably could if I really thought about. It. I, I'll find out. All right. Anyways, um, it's really, really funny, and its story kind of followed me for a long time. Yeah. But uh, so I ha- and I have this compressed air can in my hand. <laughs> so this exit door near the screen, everybody's watching the film. It's running fine. There's a hair up there, though. In right? your mind? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, though there, there was a hair, but uh, I know that. I know that for a fact before I blacked out. But But it it, wasn't
0: on the screen. In your drunken state, you thought the hair was on the screen, not in the camera, because you couldn't get it out of the camera.
1: Well, that's, isn't that the whole, that's the whole insanity of the story, right? right? Because here's what happened when I opened up that door and walked out across the screen naked, right? (laughs) And this is a lower screen. You you could probably see my Kai hanging out, right? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a full... It, it was full aperture type picture the right. floor was almost on the, the picture was almost on the floor and i walk out in front of it and i take this compressed air screen uh uh air compressed air can yeah. and i and i pointed up towards his hair and i start spraying it uh, you know and when everybody first of all when they saw me they freaked out but when they saw that yeah that's when they knew something was really twisted right <laughs> And according to my boss, they started exiting out the out the rear doors. They just started leaving right then. They didn't even wait for the film to run out. They just start like and uh and I I wander off into this blackout and, and pass out in this utility closet. Right? So that's one of my bosses I'm trying to figure out. He's like, God, I wish I could have been there and he's so he's so in, enthusiastic and like oh my god oh i wish i know? could have been there i oh wish i could have been He's there like you know and just a, a kind of undertone oh by the way you're fired and yeah. my goodness. couldn't know. <laughs> so that was one of the four
0: studios that was
1: one of the four studios and then uh the ordinary people one uh was uh for columbia when it was on the Warner Bros. lot but it was a columbia film and It was robert redford's uh debut as a director
0: yeah and, and uh, it was a great movie it won a bunch of oscars yeah Fabulous movie. Yeah.
1: And uh, he just, it just been shown. It was the first rough cut. It was really long. It was over three hours. It was in picture and track format, which means the track, the actual audio track is separate on 35 millimeter, but separate magnetic track from the picture. And they both have to be sunk up. And when it's in an editorial form like that, a three hour picture with being picture and track would be approximately 34 separate reels of film. So a lot of work. So anyways, I'm running this. I, I, I get to where this film had just been run in New York at Magno um, for some other people, for the Warner Brothers people over there. And it, and it was late coming back, and there were a lot of very high-powered people waiting to see this film from Warner Brothers and Columbia, including Robert Redford. And the film hadn't shown up yet. The flight was late. The team's bring in the film finally. I'm waiting the auditorium's waiting uh usually they prepare that film the editors do before they even uh they bring it in a day early and check it all so i'm i'm loaded out of my mind up there i'm <laughs> drinking i'm hot i've got my tank i got my wife beater on are we
0: nuded up oh i guess no.
1: not if you got the wife beater on. No, i got the it, wife beater on yeah. the levi's and uh, uh, whatever and uh so the film finally comes in. I open it up, and it's a mess. There's there's film all over the place. The tapes all come undone. So it's 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 kind of unspooled everywhere. I find the first couple of reels. I get them up on the projectors. I take off. I figure, and these are short reels. They're only eight minutes a piece or whatever. But I get everything turned around. I'm good. I can do it. That was my that was my mistake, right? and uh
0: this is this is before you had realized the power of asking for help you were still in your yes. ego of i can do this all on my own absolutely right because you I were handed just... basically
1: and, a, and a, and a full... tub
0: of shit yes technically yeah and but you didn't you had to be superman
1: and, and and it also goes back to being on the edge yeah like all my stuff as a young boy you know the the, the throwing of the rocks the dealing the dope goes right back to there too yeah. It's like, I, I can pull this off. I can get so close. But if you don't, you're really... You're going to crash and burn. Yeah. And so uh, I got on five or six reels in, and the picture breaks. <clears throat> and I had to, you know, uh, like I said, it's picture and track. and It's interlocked together. So I had to stop and turn on the house lights. And the editor comes back up and says, what happened? You know, I said, I, I just gave the guy a look like, are you kidding me? You know, <laughs> what do you mean? What happened? Well, I said, one of your splices came apart. One of your you know, million slices you have in this thing here. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, he's, I said, don't worry, I can sync it up without taking it back to the bench. I'll be up in a few minutes. He's okay, all right. He goes back down. Start rolling, get another half hour, 45 minutes into the film. Another one breaks, right? Oh, God, he keeps coming up. And this is really nothing about my operation at all. Everything was in sync. Everything was in focus. Everything was, changeovers were happening. i film all over the place. Right, But, uh, I was getting it on the screen as far as they're concerned it was a good screening it didn't start keep breaking but the final time the third time it 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 kind of a key part of that picture almost a turning point in the whole film uh the picture breaks and I know most people have probably seen this but it broke in the aperture and the hot hole of the picture and did one of those melty yeah it did a poop Little little hole and then it burns all the way across the screen. Yeah, Melted it all the way across the screen, right? And house uh, lights like, come on. I turn everything on. I stop the projectors. This time I got to really do some work on it because I got to put a piece of of slug in it mm. to, and make sure it's in sync. I'm thrashed, man. I'm thrashed by now. And uh, and I got that bottle on that on the gutter and I'm hitting that I'm hitting that vodka hard. And um, this time, I'm down by the lower magazine projectors, between the two projectors, trying to sync up this film. Got a splicing block down there, trying to slug this hole, this in the picture. And Robert Redford comes up, and he's got both his hands, one on one lap house and one on the other. He's got his feet spread apart. And he says, What the fuck is going on here? right? And... No, I'm not I'm not this type of guy, but something happened that day. I <laughs> I snapped. Uh and it, I didn't say anything, but I turned my head like kind of real like the razor fast and I looked up at him and he knew as soon as I looked at him that something was wrong. Yeah. Right? And he took his hands off the lap housing, he backed up, right? And I stood up and I said and I just started walking towards him. He's back, he's backpedaling now mm-hmm. out of the out of the booth and I said get the fuck out of here. And he's like <laughs> What? What? I said, get the fuck out of my booth! Get out of here! Right now, he's going back down the stairs, right. walking backwards downstairs. And he's like, "Do you know who I am?" And I said, "I don't give a fuck who." Are. I chase him down the hall, right outside the theater, and he's going up to this little uh, hallway that goes into the doors of the theater. And I chase him up there, and and he's he's still kind of walking backwards, forwards, backwards, yeah. forwards, right, yeah. Just yelling and talking at me, right. And uh, I catch the door as as it's starting to close when he's in there, and I just and I just before I slam it, I say, "And stay the fuck in there, <laughs> right?" <clears throat> and nobody—I went up, finished the film. Nobody came up in the booth after that, right? Yeah. But next day, I got that call. I got that call, and uh, and they—it uh, it was it was from New York, and they said. Uh, I just want you to know, this is a call from Warner Brothers in New York, and uh, did you run a phone for Robert Redford uh, last night? And I said, yes, I did. And uh, I said, could you tell us exactly what happened?
0: And they also told you that the the phone call was being recorded, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. They said it's being recorded. Yeah.
1: So I told them exactly what happened. I was truthful with them and and told them uh, that I got upset and chased Mr. Redford out of the booth. and. (laughs) Down the hallway yeah. back into the theater, yeah and uh so that was that i had another that's another one where they put one and of those do not, do let, do not, this not man let this in. Guy in. <laughs> and uh so you know i that's and there's there's another one where i um i was doing a big screening a seventy millimeter six track screening of of uh of mary poppins uh-huh at uh, the original yeah when it first came out yeah at mgm yeah and this is one of my first ones this is when i first started smoking dust
0: yeah <laughs>
1: i love that this guy <laughs> showing mary
0: poppins is high on angel dust <laughs>
1: yeah <laughs> to Sixth, you six track 70 millimeter the highest technology of its yeah. time ever yeah. i mean you know this yeah this 70 millimeter was just recently created and six tracks film with it. It yeah. was, you know, six track magnetic on the, film. anyways, we'd been doing print checks all day between that and, and Grand Prix, mm-hmm. another 70 millimeter, six track Frankenheimer film. Okay. So, um, I'm, I, this is a big, big, big screening, but Mary Poppins is this, this is in the, uh, MGM grand theater. at mm-hmm. one of the biggest, Theaters in Hollywood on a major lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, 700 seats. Yeah. Right. And everything's going along fine, except when we were doing all those print checks and everything, somehow a reel of Grand Prix got put into the Mary (laughs) Mary Poppins mix. Right. (laughs) Oh, God. And they all look the same. You got to understand. They're all in the exact same kind of reels. They look the same type of film. It's just a name. One says Grand Prix, the other one says Mary Poppins. (laughs) They could both be real sixes, and they were, (laughs) but one was Grand Prix, right? (laughs) So they're they're singing a lot. It's just this real touching singing song, you know, of of Mary Poppins. And uh, I change right over into this probably 120 dB of a camera on the back of a Grand Prix car, right? (laughs) Like like that like just you know.
0: jolted people out of their seats
1: and when it and, and you know you monitor everything from the booth and whatever and it was like you know it was like paul it was like the wave everybody <laughs> when it happened i saw the whole audience kind of go just they just yeah. kind of leaned forward like a wave going simultaneous it was and then i saw people start getting up in the aisle right and start running uh start running up the because I got to stop the film. Right. I got to stop the film. I got to change the reel. And right. They're going to be up there screaming at me. So, first thing I did is I run over and I locked the door.
0: Uh huh. Because right. you don't want help.
1: Uh, uh, well, I can not, it No, you don't want help. You don't, don't want to want, get so yelled so, at. I, I want to get the film back on the screen yeah. as fast as I yeah. can, right? But while I'm doing this, my conniving mind is thinking of a way out, okay? So, I get the right reel back up. I, I start it. And what, what I do, because all those prints. MGM had their own lab at the time. Came out of the MGM mm-hmm. lab. I go over and I cut the two. I, I I take at the splice of of the front leader. I switch the two things, right? Mm-hmm. Like it really happened. So to cover your ass. Right. Right. So that the, oh they come they come fly. I finally unlock that door. I said man. I'm sorry. I just wanted to get the right thing up here. You know, I did. It's the last thing I need. You guys yelling at me. So you made it reason. look like somebody
0: else's fuck up.
1: So they come. What the fuck happened? I said, "Not me, man. Take a look at this, man." <laughs> <clears throat> I show them the leader. Yeah. Right. I pull it down. I put it up the light. I, I show them the picture in it, and 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 there it is with a, a Mary Poppins yeah. head leader with a Grand Prix race car. Right. right. And, uh, yeah, somebody, somebody got hung out big time in the lab for that, but I got out of it. Wow.
0: Wow. You're you, the wreckage oh. that
1: you caused. Oh, I could go on and on. up, goes on and, on and on. Yeah. But one day, um, everything's gone in my life. I'm really, really sick. Uh, physically sick. And this is how many years ago? This was in 1982, Mm -hmm. so uh, getting close, you know, 29 and a half years ago, so. um, And one day, you know, I've been passing out coming to for years, Paul, whatever, and one day I come, uh, I come come to in that bedroom, and it was sky blue, the bedroom was painted sky blue, and I come to, and uh, I don't know where it came from, but. I just said, God, either help me or take me. And uh, I remember the sunlight coming in the or blinds in the morning, uh, about 10 o'clock, I guess. And the next thing I remember, sitting in the same place, like it was edited <laughs> together was the sun setting and coming in the opposite side of the level or on the other side of the room. But on the other side, as I came out of that other side, it wasn't a white light experience. It wasn't a tram- time-traveling thing. It was just an absence of time. But one half of the disease that almost killed me and many other people and pushed me to do such horrible things where I couldn't get the key off, the mental part was gone, completely gone. I was still physically hooked. I had a habit, but with the <clears throat> with the mental obsession gone, yeah. with I gotta drink, I gotta use, I gotta get something in me. I have to, I can't survive life without it. I can't stop. Yeah. Was completely gone. And uh my friend came home that night and he looked at me and uh I'll, I'll never forget what he said, you know. He said The pain's gone from all your face. Wow. uh, I said, I haven't drank today. I haven't drank today. I remember I started crying. And, uh, see, the uh, the most important day of my life, beyond my kids being born, Beyond anything, that day, right there, that moment.
0: So something, something changed. Deep. Yeah, Deep that, inside you.
1: That day was one of those days where I. Um, didn't understand really what happened. Mm Uh, but I knew something had a psychic change in me. Yeah. And, um, I remember I was, I was liberated. I was free and I knew it, but I couldn't explain it. And I was afraid to even say anything about it because I was so exhilarated with this, um, possibility uh, of this actually staying with me. Uh, because here I was in the bondage of chemicals for a long, long time, um, and when uh, I realized there was a way out a few years prior to that, I had surrendered to the fact that I was going to die, uh, an act alcoholic, in my early 40s. Really? If I, yeah, I totally had surrendered to that, and I accepted it, and I, I remember in my head running this little scenario down that would say, you know what, Greg, you really had it going on, you know, you were you were an athlete, people loved you in high school, you had you know, you're a good-looking successful guy in the studios, you had it all right there. You scared Robert Redford. I terrorized a a, a lot of people and had You nuded up at a,
0: at a premiere.
1: <laughs> had a lot of fun doing it and um and so I was um kind of just in this still zone, in the now, completely in the now for like the first time. Uh, maybe ever that i 'd really experienced that on a psychic level yeah. and um, without chemicals mm-hmm. now i 'm still you know going to have to do the shake and bake because i 'm i 'm physically hooked right you know, but the obsession of the mind part right. was completely removed, gone, and uh, and I did I shake and baked for about two or three days, and I ended up going uh, where I needed to go to get some help which was a, a you know place for me that was very special um, and i started this journey of a, of a sober life
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um i was bankrupt in all areas uh, the friends whose house i was staying at was uh you know let me stay there for for no rent he eventually eventually uh within 2 or 3 months got pretty healthy and uh it it was like I was hatched out of a cocoon again uh and it was like this new greg came back and and is uh and i have a very i have i have a very good strong incredibly strong dna and and healthy body which was good and bad it's good now that i'm on the you know the clean Among side. the living and right. on the clean side. But when I was out there, it allowed me to take it to levels that even some of my sickest friends that were in addiction with me right. were like, I can't believe you. You're, you're like unbelievable. Yeah. In fact, there were a lot of people that wouldn't let me fix in their house because they would see how much I'd put in the spoon. And I said, there's no way. I'm not having an overdose here. Really? Yeah.
0: Like, I, I I'm not I, <clears throat> I've never done heroin, so I'm not familiar with like what's a smaller or large amount? I suppose it depends on the potency of it. It
1: depends on, yeah, what was on the streets at that time and you know whether you were shooting a half a gram or you're shooting three-quarters of a gram or you're shooting a couple tenths or a tenth. It depended on the potency and what type of uh, drug was on the street then. But uh, at that time, it was what was called salt-and-pepper heroin, which was uh, raw Mexican heroin cut with uh, lactose.
0: So you'd shit yourself a little bit later? No, or no? no,
1: no, no. That's uh, that's kind of a fallacy, really. It doesn't yeah. because well, for one thing, uh, any opiate is extremely constipating. Yeah, uh, I'm serious. I, there would be times I wouldn't. Uh, I
0: was on Vicodin for a while after a surgery. Yeah, yeah. you don't have to tell me. It's yes, <laughs> yes,
1: and, and that resulted many years later of a full hemorrhoid surgery, which yeah. was a brotherhood of its own. <laughs> <laughs> That is, uh, yeah, anybody that's had that one. (laughs) So, um, so I started on this journey and I'm living at my buddy's house and, uh, I had no wheels and I'm taking buses around and about four months in, I go back to number three who has my daughter. Now it's two and a half and, um, she sees this unbelievably, you know, um, Completely different Greg and uh, this
0: was the wife who pulled away who left you off
1: at the yes. hotel and you watched your uh-huh. little girl mm-hmm. wave to you
0: in the back window mm-hmm. or look at you
1: yeah and see there was this there was this deep connection between us because I like I said maybe this was the only woman I was really in love with and she was in love with me uh, <clears throat> but it was hard to describe that and identify it because it was it was so layered down in addiction mm-hmm. you know
0: I mean you know one of the hallmarks to me of addiction Is the inability to describe your feelings I think it's one of the reasons why we run to drugs and alcohol is because it's just it's just a feeling in our gut that we need to avoid and we're so bad at articulating what it is that we're we're feeling and to me you know there's like to me there's two steps in recovering from from drugs and alcohol the first one is beginning to know what it is that you're feeling that you're trying to run from. And then the second phase is being able to express that to other human beings so that you can have healthy relationships. Yeah. But uh, it, but in the beginning, you don't even know. You just know, I want to punch a wall. I don't want to punch a wall. I want to get fucked up. I don't want to get fucked up. I want to kill myself. I, you know, I want to live.
1: Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, and for me, being a passive, nonviolent person, I was a containment yeah. I would contain every emotion within me, and that came from you know that pomp, power, prestige thing that I was brought up. But I really think that sprung sprungboard out of my motherboard, so to speak, or the way I was raised by environment and people. And people at the time were from my parents and the society that surrounded. So here I am, this guy that can't act out in any kind of violent way because it just wasn't part of me. Uh, at the same time, I had these great gifts of forgiveness that I got from my dad and, uh, and understanding. But uh, the emotional part that you're talking about, to mentally try and put that out, was way too much fear. Yeah. There was uh, that I wouldn't do it right, or that I would look weak, mm-hmm. or that I would look uh, like I needed help.
0: And that, let's stop there for a second. The fear of looking weak, I think that kills more people than than anything and yet it it is once you're unafraid to look weak there there is such freedom on the other side of that life becomes so much easier if you can just accept it you know what some people might think that I'm I'm weak some people might think that you know this or that but if you can if you can accept that and not care about that man that is the door mm-hmm. the doorway to such incredible freedom but for most people and men especially that that and if you were raised with a dad who was stoic and macho
1: mm-hmm. that how scared i was when i knew my father was close to passing and could i find the emotion to to feel to dedicate to let out when he passed you know,
0: and how how long had you
1: been sober when he passed? Five years. Yeah, and I was the one that pulled the plug on him. You know, really? Yeah, there wasn't a "I uh, a do not resuscitate" sign, right? A DNR. So, uh, so basically, at that time, and this was in '87. Um, if I was to say you, you couldn't at that time, you, you had to just let the process take its. Mm-hmm. And I knew that's what he, the last thing that he wanted, but now he's in a coma. He can't. Uh, he can't tell anybody that. Please, you know, take me off life support. So I'm, I would sit there next to him, and uh, uh, I, I remember I'd sit there next to him, and uh, I would just sit and just kind of hold his hand and look and just say. Uh, I remember thinking this all the time. You know, uh, how did I deserve such a great father? You know. And, uh, because see now, now all those layers of numbness are starting to come off and now I'm starting to feel, really feel right. And, uh, and I'm starting to realize some of the stuff that he inputted to me, mainly by example, mainly just by a half a dozen little things that stood out in my mind as a kid that he passed on to me, you know? And there were experiences that we had together. If it was going to a market and walk out of a market, and one day he says, oh, come on back with me. And I walk back to the market with me, and he hands the cashier $10. He says, you gave me too much money. Mm-hmm. That's it. We get in the car. We drive home. And he says, son, you know why I did that? And I said, no, why would you do that, Dad? Mm-hmm. You know, and he says, because you'll rep- be repaid tenfold somewhere along your life, and it may not be in money. Right. And I remember those things, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> And so, uh, I'm sitting there with him one day and I notice that his head shifts and I see his eyes kind of flutter and I get, I stand up and I get down close to him and you know, another shot from wherever this great creator of this universe or whatever you want to call it, you know, um, he whispers, I want to meet my maker. Wow. And yeah, I was like, you know, it was like, it was beyond a chill that went through me, you know, <clears throat> and I stood up and I, it was instant, instantaneous. I knew from that moment on what I was going to do. And I went and got a registered nurse, an ambulance service. I told them to come in there and they went straight in there and started unhooking him. And they came in and said, what are you doing? You can't do this. The Ventura DA can file on you, you know, go ahead and file. I took him home and he died in the front room with the family around him looking out on the golf course. Wow. Two days later. Yeah. So those gifts and, and the alignment of that synchronicity mm-hmm. in my life as <clears throat> at that time I was 40 years old. Um,
0: and by the way, you're not the first friend of mine that, uh, that did that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can't imagine... Uh, Unless it's clear in your mind that that's what you should do, I can't imagine how tough that's got to be for somebody. But what a gift to have that be very clear in your mind yeah. that, that that's what you need to do, mm-hmm. and uh, that's uh, that's wonderful.
1: So let's fast forward. Um, um, I get my daughter back; mm-hmm. uh, she was two and a half at the time. I start to work back in the studios. I'm working the daily board. I'm working in a lot of different studios. People see a different Greg physically. Uh, I give 110%. Uh, the years move on. Um, I got I had my daughter uh, through these years, uh, didn't miss one weekend from Friday night to Sunday evening uh, for 12 years straight. So she kind of grew up, uh, you know, around the new Greg, around the new process, around all the friends that were involved in my new life. And it's like I entered a new world because that old life and those old people just were, were no longer apart. Now I had people that I'd known forever. I was kind of a pack leader amongst our group of guys that were all, some of them, a lot of them dead, some of them in jail, and some of them living the, the good life, you know, um, clean and sober. But so I'd go by their house like every week whatever, for years, right, and uh, eventually uh, they start showing up my door, you know, they hit their bottom, I guess it's about three of them, three of them have over 25 years now, you know, and uh, I'm going to one of of his weddings uh, on on Friday, actually, great stuff, that's all wonderful, Um, me and my daughter built this incredible kind of special relationship, right, so she's at the age of 10, and she's asked in school to write a paper that she'd have to share in front of the class about who was her hero she knows everything about the past she knows everything right so she writes this paper on my hero is harry bring <laughs> right and she does this whole story about harry bring and what he did and what he was like and and then what happened right it's this just unbelievable that I got, the, I got the sheet and I laminate it and put it in a case and it's, you know, it's on my mantle right? And it's just heart, heartbreaking, right? <clears throat> uh, but such a great, great piece because she Harry Brink turns into her father, right? Wow. You know, as you get sober, you realize that it's really the inside stuff that runs your life and makes you happy and content yeah. and emotionally content. Yeah. And it, it, that energy from the inside is what really runs your life on the outside. Yeah but as the outside stuff starts coming into you those all take responsibilities yeah those those big houses those nice cars those schools those valley all that stuff
0: mm-hmm. right and your ego mm-hmm. ever so slowly begins to get its little badger claws into that absolutely. and before you know it they're in so deep absolutely
1: and the and the worst thing as you know for us is we have the disease of more so mm-hmm. we can never ever fulfill that shiny, important, good-looking yeah. image stuff. We'll never, ever get to a, a place there where we're happy. But, because but, that, that won't make us happy.
0: It won't, but the hit, <clears throat> the initial hit of it is so intoxicating. Mm-hmm. It makes you want more of it. It is there. There are There's mm-hmm. a, a million different drugs that we can be mm-hmm. addicted to. Yeah. We can be addicted to compliments. We can be addicted to you know, uh, a fast car. Absolutely. We could be addicted to the internet, to video games. I mean, yeah. When I, when we I, don't do five. I mean, we do zero or
1: ten. Absolutely right. And, and see, I think what it happens here is the unconscious self-deception of me, and I think a lot of ags and alcoholics, is buried so deep and is layered so camouflage so intricately mm-hmm. that really we, we there's no way we can see it unless we're in the process of you know, writing and somebody that's been there that can really pull that out of
0: you. And being honest with people uh, every day who are just like you and talking to them and talking about your feelings because mm-hmm. sometimes we don't know what's going on until we start talking about it. Exactly. And uh, mm-hmm. if we sit in a chair and try to figure it out ourselves... It you know it's you're going to the enemy to try to find out how to defeat the enemy. Well, of course it's gonna your broken brain is gonna give you the worst advice imaginable. It's gonna say you just need to sit here and get away from everybody and figure this out on your own. That's right. Because it's nice and safe here in the lazy boy. Nobody's gonna bore you. Nobody is going to criticize you.
1: You know the whole surrender to win, die to live. I do you want to be right or happy? Yeah. Um, all, all that stuff is camouflaged so deeply because I I don't want you to tell me I have to change. Then mm-hmm. I, I don't want change.
0: Change is one of the most frightening to things to <clears throat> people to begin with. But if you uh, have an addictive personality and you seek uh, comfort, there's there's comfort in the familiar, mm-hmm. and uh, I believe that that most uh, addicts and alcoholic prefer. Uh, the nauseating familiar to the promise of the beautiful unknown mm-hmm. because it's just the unknown is so frightening to, to me and to most people I know it, it's it it takes trust and if you don't have trust that's one of the most difficult things to generate and that's why I think it's so important to connect to, to people um, and to, to take those little risks of saying hi or getting out of yourself because that fear of being rejected, of I'm going to look like a doofus, I'm going I'm to make a mistake. And that's, the, that's kind of the first bricks of the prison that we build for ourselves is that judging how we think the future is going to unfold.
1: Yeah. And it all comes back to, you know, that fear of you seeing really me. Yeah. And, and and the lengths we go to, uh, to cover that up and camouflage our, uh, our real core sense, it, it, even in recovery is devastating it is, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's much like a lot of people say, it's like taking the layers off an onion till you get down to that mm-hmm. core. And, uh, and often, when you do that on an onion, you get down to the core and it's you know it's that bronze kind of dirty looking color or whatever you yeah. know yeah Yeah. so it's it's a long process and it's exciting that you're when you're in the process and doing that so
0: you know that, that that's another thing that I want to point out is how difficult it is to keep your perception of something uh when Everybody around you has a warped perception. You know, that's why yes. I think it's so difficult to, to get sobriety or to, to have any kind of spiritual centered life mm-hmm. in show business or I would imagine politics or anything else where where people uh, have this just warped. You know, like I have a, a, a relative who is uh, trying to stay sober and he works in the fashion industry. And oh. I can't imagine... You know, an industry with more fucked up priorities yeah. than the fashion industry. It's all about the outside and, and image. It. And, mm-hmm. uh, so you're, you, you would better have a lot of people that are grounded that you're connected to on a daily basis. If, if you are hoping to keep your priorities straight when your 40 hour or 80 hour a week job, you're surrounded by people with
1: fucked up priorities. Absolutely, yeah, no, no, that's that, that's very true, uh, very true, and uh, great people, fun. I mean, you'd, you'd stop. I'd stop sometimes. and would say, my God, you, you never. You, uh, you high school. You know, you have high school diploma, and that's it. And look at this, you know. So yeah, uh, you, you, there's there's a lot of excuses for you to keep going on, whatever. And then uh, of course everybody i know that's in the studios gets to a point where they live outside their means yeah and and then you have to work and you have to get that over time and you have to you know so you trap yourself in but uh
0: so anyways uh for uh time purposes i had to uh condense this interview uh greg basically went on to say that uh, he was sober for 18 years uh but he his job became more and more important to him and he was eventually working 80 hours a week and was not doing any of the spiritual practices that had gotten him sober in the first place. And uh, he eventually started drinking again, and that began to uh, get out of control. And he told himself that that was okay as long as he didn't do heroin. And uh, we pick up the story. um, Probably would have been about four or five years ago, um, and uh, he was watching a TV show.
1: They are doing a show on a heroin addict. Right, and they had this high-def shot of this heroin addict who had been sick, trying to score, and finally did. Okay, now if you're a heroin addict, that's that's the trap, right there, because you go from like having a raging flu to a matter of a second or two putting that plunger down to nirvana. So going from from like a raging flu to feeling. Yeah. Just beyond, yeah. like nothing.
0: Yes, and that choice is being given to somebody who is constitutionally impatient.
1: Yes, <laughs> to begin with. Yes, absolutely. And so, uh, and they have this high def shot, and they're watching this whole thing, him sick in the chair, screen, getting the balloon open, putting it in the spoon, all full screen. You know, I'm watching it on, on my 54 inch plasma, right? And I'm yeah. like, okay. And I'm watching, him am going, "This is a little graphic, right?" And he, and they do the whole thing tying off, drawing up the blood, and putting it down, and then they pan up to his face. And they watch you watch his transition. Right. And I go, Oh. And I thought immediately about my friend who runs that show. I wonder if she has any kind of editorial rights. That's a little too much. Next day I go in for this uh and check for my skin for dermatology or something. I'm the doctor, they do the weigh in, they said the doctor will be right in. I'm sitting on the in the office, the door closed. Supply nurse comes in and lays down a package of syringes, right? Now, my connections for black tar is mentally in my head. It's erased from my phone, but it's in my head, right? I see those syringes. I, I think about that show last night. I steal one of the syringes. I leave that hospital. I call the connection up, and there started my year and a half of shooting speedballing and eventually what happened was uh things got really dicey and shaky from there and my crew got really really scared and worried about me and i was starting to have opiate blackouts and disappearing at nights and uh uh looking really bad and my crew would get together and have talks about me i knew it you mm-hmm. know my crew loved me and they were scared to death about me right and uh Um, and so what happened was I needed a fix. I had dope on me and my head engineer was diabetic and I knew he always called his insulin insulin syringes with him. And, um, so he went off to do a job on the, on the lot and I went into his briefcase and stole one of his syringes, right? Now he had like six or seven in there. I didn't think he'd miss them, which he didn't at first, but It kind of became once I did it once. It's like anything with an addict. Oh, I can do that again. I don't. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd have to rush back to the studio doing something, and I go, God, I need a syringe or whatever. And I was so out of tune with the whole thing like that. I didn't know you can buy them drugstores now, right? You know, yeah, (laughs) you can just go in and buy them. Mm -hmm. But I was like, "Ah, I don't know where to get them anymore. Mm -hmm. So, and last last time, what happened was I uh, I went into this briefcase and there were only three. I took one. And I thought, oh, this is obvious, pretty obvious, you know, because he had to he had to inject uh, at least twice a day right and uh, and that that was it and so i'm um, I'm over at the boss's house, the big boss's house uh, at uh, Peter Chernin's home in the middle of the day, doing some work on his screening room, and uh, I get this call from uh, one of the guys, and they said, they're, they're going to H&R. The whole crew got together and said they made a decision. Instead of, instead of you killing yourself, um, overdosing, they're going to turn you in. Right. And I was like, no, 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 please, please, I'll go back into treatment. I will. I'll go right back. I'll go right. And They said, no, it's, it's done. I think they're already up on the hill. Yeah. So that's what happened. And you know the funny thing? It wasn't the narcotics that got me fired. It was the stealing of the syringe. Yeah, that's what got me fired. Uh, and
0: even until that moment, mm-hmm. there you still lacked the perspective. You couldn't see the oh, truth see was it. that you couldn't handle this job. That's right. That's
1: right. And I they could, could not stay sober with that job. Yeah, I couldn't do it, so I got fired uh, from thirty-five year career. You know, and um, uh, but
0: that break allowed you to regain your perspective. And well, to... I
1: still didn't get sober for like you know because when I went home there was the wife that had already started drinking in 98, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. she was still drinking her wine and right. doing whatever she wanted to do, but she's not anything like me. She could probably do it for the rest of her. Life. She'd never had any DUIs or in jail. Mm-hmm. She could probably do it her whole life. But anyways, all that pressure at home was, was just not working. So um I ran with it for a while and finally, uh, you know, finally ended up hitting that spot where I was done and kicked old school. Yeah. Kicked on, uh, kicked on my 98, uh, 88 year old mother's couch, kicked wow. heroin and, uh, been sober ever since.
0: Well, buddy, I, I want to thank you for, for coming and, uh, opening it up and, uh, thank you for being my friend. Thanks for having uh, me, Paul. You know,
1: it's, it's funny to go through this again and try and put it all together because you know, it, it it's very it, it's uh continuity's tough because okay. there's so many different parts of my life. Uh, but thank you for allowing me to uh share it with you. Yeah. You're a good you're a good friend. I love, love you dearly. Love you too, buddy. Thanks. thanks.
0: Many thanks to Greg Cheever for that great interview. Thanks to you guys for listening and supporting the show. Um uh, hopefully we make each other feel less alone and less fucked up um uh i would like to send you out with a, something my parents used to tell me uh they'd say paul and this is honest to god they would say paul do something that you love for a living because if you love it you'll you'll have passion about it you'll probably do it well and the money will take care of itself and then they would add but please don't go into advertising If you're out there and you have a product, give me a call. Maybe we'll advertise it on the show. Sorry, Mom and Dad.